it's Nudie, and you're listening to Reading Books with Nudie. We've been reading A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett and A Jingle from The Jingle Book by Carolyn Wells in every episode. Today is a little bit different. We're going to hear a longer jingle, and I'll tell you the reason why later. Today we're going to also hear the second part of our eighth chapter. We're going to finish it. And if you're new here, I really recommend you go back and listen to past episodes or you might not understand the story. All right, let's get started. Chapter 8, In the Attic, Part 2. When Sarah's mind seemed to awaken again to the life about her, she realized that she had forgotten that an ermine guard lived in the world. The two had always been friends, but Sarah had felt as if she were years the older. It could be contested that Ermengarde was as dull as she was affectionate. She clung to Sarah in a simple, helpless way. She brought her lessons to her that she might be helped. She listened to her every word and beseeched her with requests for stories. But she had nothing interesting to say herself, and she loathed books of every description. She was, in fact, not a person one would remember when one was caught in the storm of great trouble, and Sarah forgot her. It had been all the easier to forget her because she had been suddenly called home for a few weeks. When she came back, she did not see Sarah for a day or two, and when she met her for the first time, she encountered her coming down a corridor with her arms full of garments which were to be taken downstairs to be mended. Sarah herself had already been taught to mend them. She looked pale and unlike herself, and she was attired in the queer, outgrown frock whose shortness showed so much thin black leg. Ermengarde was too slow a girl to be equal to such a situation. She could not think of anything to say. She knew what had happened, but somehow she had never imagined Sarah could look like this, so odd and poor and almost like a servant. It made her quite miserable, and she could do nothing but break into a short hysterical laugh and exclaim, aimlessly and as if without any meaning, "'Oh, Sarah, is that you?' "'Yes,' answered Sarah, and suddenly a strange thought passed through her mind and made her face flush. She held the pile of garments in her arms, and her chin rested upon the top of it to keep it steady. Something in the look of her straight-gazing eyes made Ermengarde lose her wits still more. She felt as if Sarah had changed into a new kind of girl, and she had never known her before.' Perhaps it was because she had suddenly grown poor and had to mend things and work like Becky. Oh, she stammered. How, how are you? I don't know, Sarah replied. How are you? I'm, I'm quite well, said Ermengarde, overwhelmed with shyness. Then spasmodically she thought of something to say which seemed more intimate. Are you, are you very unhappy? She said in a rush. Then Sarah was guilty of an injustice. Just at that moment, her torn heart swelled within her, and she felt that if anyone was as stupid as that, one had better get away from her. "'What do you think?' she said. "'Do you think I am very happy?' And she marched past her without another word. In course of time, she realized that if her wretchedness had not made her forget things, she would have known that poor, dull Ermengarde was not to be blamed for her unready, awkward ways." She was always awkward, and the more she felt, the more stupid she was given to being. But the sudden thought which had flashed upon her had made her oversensitive. 
She is not like the others, she had thought. She does not really want to talk to me. She knows no one does. So for several weeks, a barrier stood between them. When they met by chance, Sarah looked the other way, and Ermengarde felt too stiff and embarrassed to speak. Sometimes they nodded to each other in passing, but there were times when they did not even exchange a greeting. If she would rather not talk to me, Sarah thought, I will keep out of her way. Miss Minchin makes that easy enough. Miss Minchin made it so easy that, at last, they scarcely saw each other at all. At that time, it was noticed that Ermengarde was more stupid than ever, and that she looked listless and unhappy. She used to sit in the window seat, huddled in a heap, and stare out of the window without speaking. Once Jessie, who was passing, stopped to look at her curiously. "'What are you crying for, Ermengarde?' she asked. "'I'm not crying,' answered Ermengarde in a muffled, unsteady voice. "'You are,' said Jessie. "'A great big tear just rolled down the bridge of your nose and dropped off at the end of it. "'And there goes another.' "'Well,' said Ermengarde, "'I'm miserable, and no one need interfere.' "'And she turned her plump back and took out her handkerchief and boldly hid her face in it. "'That night, when Sarah went to her attic, she was later than usual.' She had been kept at work until after the hour at which the pupils went to bed, and after that she had gone to her lessons in the lonely schoolroom. When she reached the top of the stairs, she was surprised to see a glimmer of light coming from under the attic door. Nobody goes there but myself, she thought quickly. But someone has lighted a candle. Someone had, indeed, lighted a candle, and it was not burning in the kitchen candlestick she was expected to use but in one of those belonging to the pupils' bedrooms. The someone was sitting upon the battered footstool and was dressed in her nightgown and wrapped in a red shawl. It was Ermengarde. Ermengarde, cried Sarah. She was so startled that she was almost frightened. You will get into trouble. Ermengarde stumbled up from her footstool. She, she shuffled across the attic in her bedroom slippers, which were too large for her. Her eyes and nose were pink with crying. I know I shall, if I'm found out, she said, but I don't care. I don't care a bit. Oh, Sarah, please tell me, what is the matter? Why don't you like me any more? Something in her voice made the familiar lump rise in Sarah's throat. It was so affectionate and simple, so like the old Ermengarde who had asked her to be best friends. It sounded as if she had not meant what she had seemed to mean during these past weeks. I do like you, Sarah answered. I thought, you see, everything is different now. I thought you were different. Ermengarde opened her wet eyes wide. Why, it was you who were different, she cried. You didn't want to talk to me. I didn't know what to do. It was you who were different after I came back. Sarah thought a moment. She saw she had made a mistake. I am different, she explained, though not in the way you think. Miss Minchin does not want me to talk to the girls. Most of them don't want to talk to me. I thought perhaps you didn't, so I tried to keep out of your way. Oh, Sarah, Ermengarde almost wailed in her reproachful dismay. And then after one more look, they rushed into each other's arms. It must be confessed that Sarah's small black head lay for some minutes on the shoulder covered by the red shawl. When Ermengarde had seemed to desert her, she had felt horribly lonely. 
Afterward, they sat down upon the floor together, Sarah clasping her knees with her arms, and Ermengarde rolled up in her shawl. Ermengarde looked at the odd, big-eyed little face adoringly. "'I couldn't bear it any more,' she said. "'I dare say you could live without me, Sarah, but I couldn't live without you. I was nearly dead.' So tonight, when I was crying under the bedclothes, I thought all at once of creeping up here and just begging you to let us be friends again. You are nicer than I am, said Sarah. I was too proud to try and make friends. You see, now that trials have come, they have shown that I am not a nice child. I was afraid they would. Perhaps, wrinkling her forehead wisely, that is what they were sent for. I don't see any good in them, said Ermengarde stoutly. Neither do I. "'to speak the truth,' admitted Sarah frankly. "'But I suppose there might be good in things, even if we don't see it. "'There might, doubtfully, be good in Miss Minchin.' "'Ermengarde looked round the attic with a rather fearsome curiosity. "'Sarah,' she said, "'do you think you can bear living here?' "'Sarah looked round also. "'If I pretend it's quite different, I can,' she answered. "'Or if I pretend it is a place in a story.' She spoke slowly. Her imagination was beginning to work for her. It had not worked for her at all since her troubles had come upon her. She had felt as if it had been stunned. Other people have lived in worse places. Think of the Count of Monte Cristo in the dungeons of the Chateau d'If. And think of the people in the Bastille. The Bastille, half-whispered Ermengarde, watching her and beginning to be fascinated. She remembered stories of the French Revolution, which Sarah had been able to fix in her mind by her dramatic relation of them. No one but Sarah could have done it. A well-known glow came into Sarah's eyes. Yes, she said, hugging her knees. That will be a good place to pretend about. I am a prisoner in the Bastille. I have been here for years and years and years, and everybody has forgotten me. Miss Minchin is the jailer, and Becky... "'a sudden light adding itself to the glow in her eyes. "'Becky is the prisoner in the next cell.' "'She turned to Ermengarde, looking quite like the old Sarah. "'I shall pretend that,' she said, "'and it will be a great comfort.' "'Ermengarde was at once enraptured and awed. "'And will you tell me all about it?' she said. "'May I creep up here at night whenever it is safe "'and hear the things you have made up in the day? "'It will seem as if we were more... "'Best friends than ever.' "'Yes,' answered Sarah, nodding. "'Adversity tries people, and mine has tried you, "'and proved how nice you are.' "'So, that's how Sarah's doing. "'But wait, there were three people who helped her, right? "'And we only learned about two, Becky and Ermengarde. "'Who do you think the third one is?' Hmm, we'll see.' "'On to the jingle, shall we?' One of my listeners wrote to me asking for a long jingle as she's packing for a trip, I think. So I found a long jingle so that she could pack for a long while and have something interesting to listen to. So here goes. For all my American listeners, a rather long jingle. Enjoy. This jingle is called The Strike of the Fireworks. "'Twas the night before the 4th of July. The people slept serene. The fireworks were stored in the old town hall that stood on the village green. The steeple clock told the midnight hour, and at its final stroke, 
the fire in the queer old-fashioned stove lifted its voice and spoke. The earth and air have not to do, the water too may play, and only fire is made to work on Independence Day. I won't stand such injustice, it's wrong beyond a doubt, and I shall take my holiday, goodbye, I'm going out. Up spoke a Roman candle then, the principle is right. Suppose we strike and all agree, we will not work tonight. My stars, said a small skyrocket, what an awful time there'll be. When the whole town comes together tonight, the great display to see. Let them come, said a saucy pinwheel, yes, let them come if they like. As a delegate, I'll announce to them that the fireworks are going to strike. My friends, said a small cap pistol, this movement is all wrong. Gunpowder, noise and fireworks to 4th of July belong. My great ancestral musket made Independence Day. I frown on your whole conspiracy, and you are wrong, I say. And so they talked and they argued, some for and some against. And they progressed no further than they were when they commenced. Until a burst of eloquence, a queer little piece of punk, arose in his place and said, I think we ought to show up some spunk. And I, for one, have decided, although I am no shirk, that today is a legal holiday and not even fire should work. And I am of some importance, here he gave a pretentious cough. For without my assistance, none of you could very well be put off. You are right, said the Roman candle, and I think we are all agreed to strike for our rights and our liberty. Hurrah, we shall succeed. The dissenters cried with one accord, our objections we withdraw. Hurrah, hurrah, for the fireworks strike, and they cried again, hurrah. Then a match piped up with a tiny voice, your splendid scheme I like. I agree with all your principles, and so I too will strike. Suiting the action to the word, the silly little dunce clambered down from his match safe and excitedly struck at once. He lost his head and he ran around among the fireworks dry, and he cried, Hurrah for the fireworks strike! Hurrah for the 4th of July! With his waving flame he lit a punk, a firecracker caught a spark. Then rockets and wheels and bombs went off, no longer the place was dark. The explosions made a fearful noise, the flames leaped higher and higher. The village folk awoke and cried, The town hall is on fire! So the strike of the fireworks ended in a wonderful display of pyrotechnic grandeur on Independence Day. That was so funny. I totally enjoyed it. Did you like it? Why do you think the fireworks didn't want to work? What do you do on Independence Day? Do you like celebrating the 4th of July and setting off fireworks? I don't celebrate Independence Day, but here in Spain we have a holiday which is sort of like Independence Day, all the fireworks and stuff. It's on June 23rd at night and I really like sparklers and small fireworks. Some people set off big fireworks as well, but I don't like those, they make so much noise. And that's the end of our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back on Monday when we will hear the first part, if not all, of the ninth chapter. Have a great weekend. Large thanks to Epidemic Sound for the songs and sound you heard today and to Project Gutenberg for the books we read. Music